Hello and welcome to Six Sad World. I'm Mari. This week's episode is going to be a little bit different because Jasmine is taking a little break for personal and academic reasons. Uh, So instead, uh, we're going to have a special guest on to talk about being in the true crime community as a marginalized person and what it kind of feels like to deal with some of these cases with our different perspectives. So I'd like to welcome Kitty. Hello. (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) No problem. Um, So Kitty, do you want to tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah. um, Mari and I both connected, I think it was over Facebook in mutual like POC slash disabled slash feminist circles and uh, we both slowly disclosed I think you were posting about this podcast actually and I was like this is totally my jam Uh, a lot of true crime spaces are super super white and uh, I've personally encountered a lot of issues in like Facebook groups related to other podcasts that weren't POC led and that frustration of dealing with those interactions led me to create uh, sort of our own space on Facebook uh, a group called True Crime Intersections which I think the name's a little awkward but it's the (laughs) only thing that sort of summarizes what we're trying to do in looking at true crime and sort of the weird fascinations we have with horror, with horrible news around the world, um, trying to look at that from an intersectional lens. Uh, And yeah, that dovetails really nicely with what you want to talk about and the way that we experience these stories being a little different than maybe uh, white or more privileged audiences. Yeah, for sure. Um, I'm pretty sure I've talked about it on the podcast before, but that was a major reason why Jasmine and I put this podcast together. I mean, I remember, like, talking about cereal with her and being like, did you see how long it took to for the the reporter to, or Sarah Koenig to get to racial profiling like she needed it to be brought up to her yeah when like as a brown person listening to that it's one of the first things you think of when you hear like his even just his name Adnan I mean the first episode when she was describing the case I was like oh this is about racial profiling that's why this case is so important that's why she picked it Mm -hmm. and then it was like episode four or five when she brings in uh one of the defense lawyers Mm -hmm. and she was like oh yeah racial profiling and Sarah Koenig was like racial profiling (laughs) really you think so And I was just like, are you serious? And yet, like, 
I don't know why it surprised me to get that reaction from true crime fans when I'm in these groups saying, hey, maybe this, like, police brutality is because of the victim's race. Maybe this Mm. act of violence isn't just uh, random or spurned by, like, quote-unquote bouts of anger. (laughs) (laughs) It's is really crazy making to have reactions like what what does this have to do with race or oh this trans person was attacked how do you know it's because they were trans uh a lot of like infuriating conversations surrounding that yeah for sure and i mean there have even been like some cases where people are just like when it's like the murder of a disabled person. They're like, well, I can see how, why you might want to do that. And it's like, oh my cool. God. cool. Oh, my God. Like, yeah, it's just very frustrating. Yeah, there's a lot of, like, ugliness, I think, that is sort of fetishized in true crime spaces where they're like, you know, I'm quirky. I like murder. And I'm like... I am also quirky and like murder, but I don't want to collect Nazi memorabilia, for example. I don't really fantasize about meeting these people in real life. I don't want to really hear their perspective from it, which is actually something that I appreciate. Um, More recent true crime podcasts I listen to saying, like, they want to focus on the victim. They don't really give a crap about what the perpetrator has to say from behind bars or wherever. Yeah. It's like, for me, I I am interested, but not in the sense where I think those reasonings or, or explanations or whatever they have to say is anywhere near as equally mm-hmm. important as the victim stories and you know, all of the little things in society that allow these things to happen. Yeah. And I think we're slowly getting the lens shifting towards why does this happen? Um, And I think, you know, podcasting has done a lot for true crime in that it makes these, uh, this media more accessible to marginalized creators to be able to tell these stories. Yeah, for sure. Like us, right here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> exactly. Um, it is something that I would love to see more people of color and disabled people and trans people getting more attention for. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it's not BIPOC or trans or disabled-led podcasts that get all of the, like, yeah popularity and the attention and so i think it would just be like really nice to see other podcasts kind of reach like an mfm level of popularity or mainstreamness definitely there's something weird about what becomes very successful and famous and I'm just like 
like MFM doesn't hide it. They're like, we are just two people reading stuff that we pulled from Wikipedia. And yes, we are funny and quirky. Um, but I'm always like, why is it that it's always white creators? Why is it usually cis creators, usually straight creators who get this attention and this celebration for work that a lot of marginalized people are also doing? Um, I mean, I guess we know why. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I think a lot of people just don't want to hear the other perspectives. Mm. Like, there's something very validating and relatable to just agree with the person you're listening to. And to know that everybody else who's listening is also agreeing with those ideas. Mm. And to have new perspectives thrown in, I think, is really jarring for some people. Especially if they're used to, you know, assuming that everybody agrees with them. That's true. And that their ideas are universal. Yeah, I believe that because I am trans and I am brown and I am disabled, like, it makes me more receptive to stories that are not mainstream, well-publicized stories. I'm thinking about Thunder Bay. I don't know if you listened to that, but it's like a very dark, but very real situation that people continue to live in, and I think most people, even true crime fans, um, will easily turn away from those realities and instead you know, relish in the Bundy documentary, because, oh my god, how did this man, this charismatic white man, get away with so much? (laughs) We have no idea. He must be superhuman. Uh, Yeah. And... It's fucked. It's fucked (laughs) up. It really is. It's... I think there's also kind of, like, this guilt... That you get when you listen to podcasts like Thunder Bay or Missing and Murdered or um, other podcasts that focus on victims of color. And I think if you're not a part of those groups, it's really easy to just be like, you know what, I'll just focus on the, the ones with white victims that don't make me feel anything. Yeah. Or, you know... Where it's kind of, like, almost acceptable to be interested in, like, Mm, it's acceptable to be interested in Ted Bundy. Like, I think a lot of people act like it makes them this weird and quirky person, but it's just like, no, everybody's obsessed with Ted Bundy. Like, that's why everybody knows the name Ted Bundy. Yeah, it's kind of like how white punks think they're so, like, anti-establishment, but really, like, the most punk you can be is, like, a multiply marginalized punk person. (laughs) And when you're in those communities, you realize how much uh, white punks actually do uphold the status quo. And I think it's the same in mainstream true crime communities. Uh, The relationship to the crimes is totally different. The tone is totally different. And I know you and I were talking about how there's so many conversations we thought we would bring to the true crime intersection group, but the group is largely quiet and doesn't have a lot of discussion because we're all 
feeling it. We're all mm-hmm. like personally tied to the stories that we're sharing in this group. And most of the comments are just like, that's fucked. That's awful. Yeah. And like, I think especially with the types of stories that we're trying to talk about, because we'll we'll do this every episode with Six Sad World and that we'll pick a theme, we'll pick a topic, and we'll be like, this is an important topic we need to talk about, but because we're so close to it, doing the research and then talking about it afterwards, it just like becomes this exhausting experience where afterwards we're just like, I never want to do this ever again. Mm-hmm. And I mean, in the end, the reason we're telling these stories and the reason that people are hopefully listening to this is not only to learn something, but also to be entertained. Um, I don't want to listen to podcasts that are not entertaining and interesting. <laughs> so I think there is merit in not going too deep. Uh also in a self-protective sort of way, like not every audience deserves your innermost traumas and in relationship to the horrific crimes that are going on. But I mean, still we plug on. We, you're making this show. We're here recording it. We have serious stuff that is worth discussing. And I hope people tune in and recognize that. Yeah. Well, speaking of the dark and heavy things that we have to talk about, um, do you want to introduce the kind of case that exemplifies those feelings for us? Yeah, we were talking earlier this week about what we were going to cover when we recorded, and we were like, yeah, we'll discuss how we both are interact with the true crime community and it'll be kind of light and free-formed and then valentine's day hit and we got the amber alert which a lot of people in ontario should be familiar with at this point it was kind of a big deal uh so we're gonna go over the murder of ria rajkumar which happened four days ago um i can deep dive into what I have prepared, uh, unless there's something you want to say before we go in. Uh, it's a lot. It's, it is yeah. a downer. I guess uh, <laughs> we'll give a warning to anyone listening who isn't familiar with the case. We're talking about violence against children. We're going to be talking about uh, a murder of a very young girl, and it's pretty close to home for, I think, both Mari and myself. So... Bear with us as we go through and tell this really important story. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, just jump into it because I think I'm just going to be very... Yeah, I'll do it. I'll <laughs> rip the band-aid off. <laughs> Thank you. No worries. All right. Um, at approximately 11 p.m. on Thursday, February 14th, which is Valentine's Day, just four days ago, Uh, Cell phones across Ontario simultaneously erupted in alarm. I was in bed with my partner, just winding down to go to sleep at the time, and my phone just started buzzing and ringing, and I was actually really spooked by it. I wasn't expecting to hear from anyone, so we both checked our screens, and they had the same message. And I'm going to read that message for you. It says, Peel Regional Police, activate Amber Alert. 
Victim is Rhea Rajkumar, age 11. Suspect is Rupesh Rajkumar, age 41. Vehicle is a silver Honda Civic, plate number ARBV598. Last known location, eastbound 401. If observed, please call 911. And that's actually the second time we ever had an emergency alert like that on our phones. I think the cellular alert system is fairly new, like it was instituted in 2018. Um, So like we got that message and we're like, wow, that sucks. Um, But we're in Toronto, so we couldn't really do anything. So we just went to sleep. Uh, Did you also get that on your phone? I did. Both me and my partner uh, got it. And it was kind of like a similar situation. We were just like watching TV and both of our phones went off. And I got a little freaked out because I know that these alerts are usually meant for like natural disasters, evacuation notices, stuff like that. Oh, shit. Yeah. So, um... But I was also kind of like, oh, is this about the storm warning that we had earlier? Like, it seems a little excessive for storm warning. Yeah, and I mean, Toronto is, like, a huge baby when it comes to snow. But, yeah, I hadn't even thought about natural disaster and, like, getting to safety. Yeah. I definitely felt helpless reading it. Yeah, I mean, and then to read that message was a whole different kind of panic because it's like there's a child out there that is in a dangerous situation and it's far away and there's nothing I can do about it. And so I just kind of had to like just turn it off and wait. Yeah. Yeah, Peel Region, for those who maybe aren't local, is about half an hour away from Toronto, which is where Mari and I are located. Um, I actually grew up in Peel Region, so a lot of overlapping like familiarity for me. So I wanted to sleep, and when I woke up, there was another notification that I guess I had slept through saying that the alert was called off and that the child was located, which is super vague um I had assumed that it meant the child was located and was okay but I guess they didn't think it was appropriate to give the details that she had actually been murdered uh Mm -hmm. by her father that that same evening um so it wasn't until I went on Facebook that I started seeing the news and I was just like oh my fucking god really awful um, yeah, when I got the second alert, um, I was, like, just confused that time because I was, like, what could it be? And when I checked, I was, like, oh, the kid's fine. Now I can, like, go to bed and, like, not worry about it. Yeah. And I think that's part of the reason why it was so vague was that whole, like, this could like seriously trigger people and at midnight yeah i believe is when the second notification came out was just after midnight um i think yeah like on a thursday night you know i think it would have 
put a lot of people in in panic and might have triggered a lot of people too. Mm -hmm. I also don't know what the protocols are around announcing a crime like that. Mm -hmm. Um, Especially because this isn't a, a media broadcast. This is like an emergency broadcast done with the police. Mm-hmm. So that I'm assuming they have some sort of like PR department that uh, schedules when this information's released. Um, but I'm going to run down a quick timeline of what happened that night. This is from an article by Ainsley Smith on the Daily Hive, um, given as a bit of a play-by-play. So Thursday, uh, again, Valentine's Day on the 14th, around 3 p.m., Rhea was dropped off at a Mississauga gas station so that her father, Rupesh, could take her out to celebrate her birthday. Because Rhea didn't live with her father, so her mother dropped her off. She was probably really excited to see her dad and to go out and hopefully have a good time. Um, Around 6.30pm, so three and a half hours later, Rhea's mother contacts the police because... Rhea failed to return at the agreed pickup time, and in addition to that, police are saying that the mother reported a threat from the father, indicating that he might harm himself and Rhea. Um, that same evening, at 11, just before 11pm, so this is five hours later, is when that alert was issued. Um, and this is the biggest criticism of the police that I've been witnessing, is... Mm-hmm what took five hours to get that alert out to people if um, like his location was known uh, they were definitely within the same area that she got dropped off or that where the father lived Um, and especially with that threat of harm like it's not just another um Dad wants custody of the child, so kidnaps child, Mm -hmm. and, you know, just tries to go and disappear with them. It's like the child's life was also threatened. Yeah, explicitly so, and uh, I haven't seen any explanation of it, but the alert wasn't given out until about 11 p.m. Rhea was last seen wearing a pink dress with hearts black boots, black tights, and a black jacket with a fur-lined hood. She was also seen carrying a black and white purse with a pink heart and an R on it. And as you said, the Amber Alert was cancelled around 12, 12 12.30am, and at that time, the Peel Regional Police confirmed that they had located Rhea's body in a Brampton residence. Some are saying it's an apartment, others are saying it's a duplex, which is believed to be Rupesh's residence. And at the same time, the OPP arrested him near Aurelia, Ontario. According to the Daily High, the same uh, media outlet as the timeline, while in police custody the next morning, Rupesh was transported to a hospital and then a trauma center to be treated for an undisclosed medical condition. And then at 1.30pm the same day, that's when the police provided an update that he is facing first-degree murder charges for the death of his 11-year-old daughter. And once he's medically cleared, that's when the legal process is going to begin. 
again, I don't know if this is something that often happens. I can imagine if somebody commits a crime like this, like they're going to be unstable, they're going to be overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Um, it doesn't seem like this was premeditated and sort of like cold and calculated. It definitely seems like there's a custody issue going on and you know he's trying to elicit some sort of response out of the mother by threatening himself and the child but yeah it's the first time I've seen like police reporting that a medical condition has sort of interrupted the legal process Mm -hmm. and I don't know I don't even know if it's worth speculating about but instinctively I'm just like he's faking it you know he is evil he is bad he's just trying to like delay the inevitable that he has done this awful thing and it might be a defense tactic um that definitely like springs to mind if he has a good lawyer um which I imagine he would have reached out to a lawyer at this point and it, it could just be like a you know, just a, a, a strategy. Um, but um, also just thinking about the timeline, um, when they found her, she was in his place in Brampton, but he was in Aurelia. So he must have killed her and then left. Yeah, took off. Yeah. Which is so. pretty bizarre. And then whatever medical condition like did that medical condition stop him from leaving town it's really weird yeah um one thing that kind of kind of caught my attention was the fact that um maria was dropped off at a gas station to meet up with her dad and what that kind of like what, how I read that is the mother was in such a relationship with the father, um, whether they're exes or whatever, yeah. um, that she didn't want to interact with him in any way. Mm. Like, she dropped her daughter off at a neutral point yeah. where she'll be picked up and she doesn't have to do small talk. She doesn't have to interact with him at all, which kind of leads me to believe that he was probably abusive in some way yeah in the marriage um if not to Rhea herself um because usually parents when they get divorced or separate they'll still try to maintain some kind of civility for their child Mm -hmm. you know at least drop them to the door of the other person's house or something yeah and that kind of distance and then you know to have it escalate so quickly because it was only three and a half hours yeah yeah it makes me wonder if her seeing him was maybe like a rare occurrence Mm mm-hmm you know, it's Valentine's Day, it's her birthday, maybe he only gets to see her for those times, or, um, you know, it it definitely gives me the vibes of, you know, 
there were red flags in play. Yeah. What is even more heartbreaking is that this was also Rhea's mother's birthday and she had plans to celebrate a joint birthday with Rhea that night after she was uh, brought home. So that is going to be such a brutal anniversary and reminder of what this man did to their child. And it's not like she'll be able to ever like hide from it because it's Valentine's Day. And oh my so God. and you know she was wearing a Valentine's outfit the last time she saw her. Mm-hmm. Like I was when you were reading the description of what she was wearing yeah. It just like suddenly popped in my head. Like she was excited about Valentine's Day. She dressed up in all her hearts and pink and yeah. you know her her little heart-shaped purse, you know? And now Valentine's Day is always going to be filled with those images. And like I can't imagine how difficult it's going to be every Valentine's Day to be reminded of the last thing yeah. You saw your daughter wearing. It's so dark. Um, I want to bring the story back just to describe Rhea a little bit more. Yeah. Um, she was a grade five student at Meadowvale Public School, uh, which is a school my cousins have gone to as well. Mm-hmm. Um her classmates and friends said that she had a vibrant personality and an infectious smile and memorials and vigils have been carried out in different communities in the greater Toronto area, including a fundraiser, which was launched to cover her funeral costs that has already reached more than $20,000. Every picture that has been shown of her shows her like smiling wide, always wearing pink Um, I think there's one going around where she's wearing, like, a fluffy pink headband, and I just see, like, I have two younger sisters. I see my sisters in her. I see my cousins in her. Uh, It's so fucked. Yeah, I mean, she actually looks so similar to my cousin's children, and, like... I watched those kids grow up and like it's just like it's too much to look at like I've been actively trying not to look at pictures of her because it's like like it literally could be a picture of of my nieces or a picture of me at 11 years old yeah like it's just so close to home What got me and the picture I'm looking at right now is um, one of her posing with her father. And it looks like they're at a wedding reception, like Mm -hmm. a very like Daisy style hall with decked out chairs and like they're wearing nice clothes. And I'm just like, he could be any one of my uncles, um, which is so unsettling, knowing what kind of violence like lurks in a lot of South Asian households Mm -hmm. and as you were saying earlier like the relationship that the mother had with him was clearly strained Uh, 
it's scary thinking about what can happen when domestic issues like this and like abuse like this goes sort of unsaid yeah I know for me there was like even since I was a kid there's always been this kind of understanding that South Asian families handle discipline in a certain way but that you were never actually supposed to talk about it mm-hmm. you know you weren't supposed to tell friends you weren't supposed to let other family members know um and it, this might just be my family because my family has a very odd dynamic in that um nobody likes each other mm. so there's this need to act like each immediate family is somehow superior to all the other immediate families and so you try not to talk about disciplining your kids and you're trying not to talk about why you have to discipline your kids yeah and you're just trying to act like everything's fine and okay and you are doing better than everybody else yeah, it's really like trying to avoid that shame. And mm-hmm. it's it's almost stereotypical of like Asian families, whether they're South or East Asian, not wanting to appear uh, tarnished. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the model minority, your kids need to grow up and be successful and be uh, productive members of society or else it reflects badly on the family. Um that ties in with why abuse in South Asian households is, like, not talked about. Um, mm. Yeah. I I think another reason is that it's hard to have these conversations without white people jumping in and not having these nuanced perspectives because they, they only know South Asian communities by their stereotypes. And they don't acknowledge all of the history that led to these, like, like, these specific narratives in these families. And a lot of the time it comes from, like, this complicated relationship with colonialism and trying to assimilate, but also trying to stay true to your culture and, you know. Yeah. I get what you're saying. I I even feel uh, instinctive, like, wanting to protect brown men from mm-hmm. the portrayal that they are less civilized, even though they, too, perpetrate the same harm that, like, white men do. Yeah. And there's definitely, in South Asian communities, this culture between fathers and daughters it's not like I don't know very many South Asian non-men who have a good relationship with their father true and so true you know I grew up kind of like hearing phrases like daddy's girl and like you know seeing this idea that fathers and daughters are supposed to have these like connection but I was always super distanced from my father. Yeah. Um, 
he never really got to know me. He always expected me to be into girl things. And he never really was interested in getting to know me. Um, and, like, I was treated very differently from how he treated my brother. And mm. even they don't have a good relationship. Yeah. So, um, I think there's... There is something to be said about how patriarchy plays out in South Asian communities. Yes, definitely. Oof. It's a heavy one. Yeah, it's... It's not fair. I mean, I think about his act in sending that message to her mother, uh... And I just think of how he wanted her to obey him. Mm -hmm. And because she didn't obey him, he killed this child. Uh, I mean, even the act of, of making the threat, it's like a manipulation tactic that abusers use quite often. Mm -hmm. You know, if you don't pay attention to me, I'll, I'll hurt myself in some way or or I'll hurt the one thing that's connecting me to you or yeah and um it's truly awful and it's this is why it's hard for abused people to leave these situations because it's not always just threats and you have to live with that risk mm -hmm. every time mm-hmm yeah. I'm trying to think about, like, the Me Too movement and how it's sort of been consumed by white people and centered around white celebrities. And mm. I'm just thinking of, like, the tools that are given to white victims while victims of color and victims of intersecting marginalizations are still unheard in a time when the spotlight is so bright and it's like finally for the first time in history we're getting to tell these stories but the very people who created this movement Toronto Burke being a black woman of color um that community is still not being serviced Mm -hmm. And it's just, like, so fucked. I mean, there are still quite a lot of people who see Rose McGowan as the, you know, yeah, that is of that wild. Movement. That is wild to me. Fuck. It was so upsetting for me because I'm also, like, a Charmed fan. And, like, Charmed is racist as hell and, like, kind of bio-essentialist and it's, like, really problematic in a lot of ways. But it was just, like, I just hated seeing someone that I didn't mind seeing on my screen at one point just, like, taking things and making it all about her. And I was like, don't give me another reason to stop watching this show that I, like... Yeah, and I mean, then there's the weird unsettling of, like, I want to defend survivors and victims at all fucking costs, but, like, when this shit happens, it's really hard to 
stay on the same side, you know? Mm-hmm. Especially when, if you try to bring up criticisms about how this movement is being co-opted and how it's further pushing people into the dark, um, you're met with, why are you attacking another survivor? We should all be together in this. Like, your time will come eventually. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, it's really taken as, as soon as you say, hey, can you spread some of the platform over here? It's assumed to mean, so you have to get off the platform now. Mm. Like, instead of making room or, or building a bigger platform or whatever, everyone's acting like there's only a certain amount it's the scar- of attention it's, to go around. It's a scarcity mentality. Yeah. Or at least that's what, like, therapy taught me, was <laughs> in a capitalist society, it's built on scarcity. It's built on supply and demand. And the idea that we have to scramble over each other in a rat race to survive and... You know, we were fighting to dismantle that. And it's really fucking frustrating when you see how it <laughs> operates, like even in survivor circles. It's, uh, it's fucked up. It's all very, like, it's so complicated. Yeah. Because it's, it's not clear cut. It's not just victims and oppressors there's like so much overlap and i think that it's what you were saying earlier about how our narratives and our relationship to these crimes and also to the community of like re-exposing ourselves to these crimes and discussing them and like being interested in them it's more complicated it's not as easy as saying oh this is the bad guy this is the good guy this is the victim this is the perpetrator like there's a lot of complicated emotions that even we've been facing in recording this very episode Mm -hmm. that it's hard to sit with uh people listening to this won't walk away with like a yeah this guy was evil but There's so much <laughs> other stuff going on. Yeah. Um, you also wanted to talk a little bit about the Amber Alert situation. Yeah, I mean, at least in this quote-unquote controversy that's emerged about the Amber Alert, like, I feel thankful that I can at least be like, oh, this is clearly fucked up. <laughs> there is not a lot of nuance here. But, uh, yeah, waking up the next day, going on social media, seeing what people are saying about this awful fucking murder, uh, a lot of people apparently on social media were complaining, not only complaining on social media, but calling the police office and saying, why are you... Not just the police office, it was 911. Oh my god. Yeah, using an emergency line to say why are you sending me a text message? You woke up my child or Mm -hmm. I was inconvenienced. I see people leveraging like PTSD and autism uh, to say like, this was wrong to use. Mm -hmm. Um, Which I can empathize with. I also like, I live with PTSD. I do get really badly triggered by sudden loud noises. I was 
really scared. I'm really glad I was with my partner because I think I would have had to like take a lot of time to calm myself down if I was alone in the house and my phone started making really loud noises. But uh, I'm able to sit with that and also say like a child was in danger and I'm okay with this temporary upset if it means she could have lived. Mm -hmm. And I think I think that brings up two points. Um, first, bringing it back to the timing of it. Um, I think that should be a bigger criticism than yeah. it reaching lots of people was that they they waited so long. And had they done the Amber Alert when they known about the threat to her life and they known she was missing and the mother was scared. Yeah. It would have just interrupted dinner. Yeah, it would have interrupted dinner and then they might have found her alive. Oh my god. And they could have prevented it and I think that's kind of the worst thing about it. Um, But the other point, I think, um, is I've seen one good criticism of the Amber Alert. Mm-hmm. And um, that is um, the design of the alert itself um, and how it plays into alarm fatigue. Mm. Um, so this is information um, that I read from a Facebook post from, oh, shoot, I didn't write their name down, um, but I think it was Lee Van Martin or something. Okay. Um, it's a public post i'll try and remember to put the link in the description so you can read for yourself yeah um and for our listeners as well um but basically um what they describe is by using the this alert that's meant for um that was like originally meant for um major disasters um and kind of major weather warnings um, and things like that, tornado warnings, um, and threats of, like, nuclear devices. Um, that's originally what the, the system was built for. And by using the same level of urgency on the alerts mm-hmm. that get to people, it dilutes the effectiveness of... Uh, the alert and like an example of this is like fire drill evacuations yeah um like places that do a lot of like fire drills without kind of you know letting people know ahead of time and um giving some kind of like warnings like Mm -hmm. people don't react to fire drills anymore um and i've definitely had times where i've woken up in my apartment and i've heard the fire alarm of the building going off and been like was there a monthly testing this, this that's week? so true and so and like I, i've never left my house and i've sat there being like wait do i smell smoke like i don't know <laughs> yeah i i don't live in an apartment now but when i did i totally remember doing that being like you know do i really want to get up put the cats in the carrier walk all the way out and then realize that it was a false alarm or just a test yeah and so um this this criticism that i read um was arguing that 
it's not that we shouldn't have the alert. It just should be designed differently so that it's not conditioning us to yeah. respond apathetically to it. I feel um, like we're so plugged in that we like we're already checking our notifications really often. If mm-hmm. it was sent with like a lower alarm or like just a notification that popped up, like I still think it would get a lot of attention. Yeah. And um yeah, cuz one of the things that that alert did is it blares the notification at the highest volume regardless of your phone settings yeah it bypassed my do not disturb and it was really scary that's really awful it's really weird i think it depends on the phone type Mm. because i saw some people saying that they had their phone on silent or do not disturb and so they just got some vibrates Mm. whereas other people like you were saying that it bypassed all of their um settings and so it was just suddenly loud to be honest I can't fully remember but I I do (laughs) remember the vibrating because it was like hitting my it was lying on my night table and like the sound of the vibration against the night table is really loud in itself so I can't fully remember if it was ringing at the same time but regardless, I was feeling that it wasn't because if you slept through the second one, yeah. Um, because what the second one did, I don't know if the first one did it because I checked it right away. Yeah. But I wasn't in the same room as my phone when the second one went off, so you didn't I could hear, hear it. it from my kitchen mm. while I was putting stuff together. And when I finished, I went to go check my phone, and it kept going off every few minutes. Like it would mm. go off, and then it would stop. And then it would go off again, and I was just like... What the hell is happening to my phone? Like, I'm glad that, like, you know, I'm in a situation where I can be really close to my phone in, like, a few minutes. Yeah. And, like, turn it off or whatever. But had I been unable to deal with it, it would have just been blaring at 1230 a.m. Just to let me know that the child was found. Found, yeah, which I don't think is as big of an emergency as this child is actively missing and in danger. Mm -hmm. And I think because it was to all Ontarians. Yes. um, It was very frustrating for people outside of Peel region because there was literally nothing we could do. Yeah, the like, OPP are... You could be on alert, but mm-hmm. yeah, you're not yeah. very likely to see his vehicle or to see her, um, because they went in, like, the opposite yeah, direction, they went basically. East. Um, the OPP is on record saying to the CBC that there's no way to segregate areas of the province. Um, mm-hmm. Whether that can be developed... Uh, in like a costly manner I don't know but yeah I mean at least the alert like as jarring as it was the police are saying that that's the reason the the, uh, guy's vehicle was spotted and Mm -hmm. reported to police so like that's how he was located Um, whether or not that's true I don't know Oh, that actually reminds me. It might also explain why Rhea was dropped off at a gas station. 
Um, but I think I remember reading that the mother didn't know where the father was currently living. Wow. That, so, yeah. Um, and that's why they didn't know where to immediately go to find him. Yeah, because I was wondering that too. I'm like, why wouldn't they just go to his house like the first thing? So that might be another reason why she was dropped off there. And it might have been that she wasn't even supposed to take her to that residence. Yeah. That it was they were supposed to stay in a public area. Oh my which god. Also kind of lends credence to that there were a lot of red flags. Oh my god. That's um, so funny. Not to say that the mother did anything wrong. Yeah. I don't want to kind of give off that vibe. Of I just realized now saying like, oh, there was red flags doesn't mean there was anything she could do about it. Um, it could have put her in a much dangerous situation yeah. to try and keep the child away from him completely. And yeah, he, it could be like a medical condition where, you know, he's not dealing with his mental health, but she doesn't want to just take away his daughter as punishment for it and there's also the possibility that like she just didn't know what to do like a lot of people think that the only option you can take is to go to the police when there are like a lot of less severe lower risk options that people can pursue like a lot of people just don't know about that Mm -hmm. which is so sad at least she did go to the police yeah. right away. It's just a shame that that Amber Alert wasn't issued right, away. right then and there. Especially if they didn't know where he lived. Mm-hmm. Ugh. And, you know, it, it's just very frustrating. It's just like, um, it really makes you think about, you know, all of, like, the, you know, missing young white girls who will have their picture up on you know like the police social media within hours of being reported missing the girl who threw the fucking chair off the apartment Mm -hmm. like her face was everywhere it was in all the buns groups that i'm a part of like that went viral and And yet this child in danger did not get nearly as much attention. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, I think it really does say a lot about who we see as victims deserving of being saved and who are only victims if it doesn't inconvenience anyone. Yeah. That reminds me of a post that I think I threw into the group. Let me see if I can pull it up real quick. Yeah, um, this was a Twitter post by someone named Cassie. I'm not going to put the handle out because I didn't get consent to do that. But she writes, I think it's really amazing that we're all having a conversation about whether it's okay to be annoyed by an Amber Alert instead of like a conversation about misogynistic violence and femicide on the Toronto Mm -hmm. subreddit. Posts about the Amber Alert and the girl who was murdered, 1,170 upvotes. Posts for men to say misogynistic things about that girl who threw a chair off the balcony, 11,995 upvotes. I wonder what the common factor is in indifference to domestic violence plus enthusiasm for putting evil women in their place. 
Yeah, I saw that post as well. Oof. And yeah, it is really, and it reminds me of feminist men who love to jump in and attack women they see as not being feminist enough instead of holding other men accountable and looking at their own actions. I wish you could see, like, my lip curling (laughs) over my face right now. (laughs) (laughs) Like, it's something that we see a lot, and it's something that, like, every time I'm around a man and they start ragging on a woman for her politics or whatever, I'm always like, okay, but that's not for you to credit like you're yeah. still a man in this situation you're still a cis dude in this situation yeah so like you need to like back up and just listen to what other people are saying yeah the comfort that i see a lot of people with different privileges have in you know discussing things out of their lane i think this is something that i have even done in identities that I have power over like there's a lot Mm -hmm. of comfort in being able to say what is and isn't true what is and isn't right or valid of discussing but man it's freaking annoying yeah um I also saw a twitter post um I also didn't write it down Mm. um So I can't give credit where credit's due. But um, someone did tweet out, um, would would there have been as many complaints if it had been a white name on that alert? Ooh. Because Rajkumar is a very South Asian name. Like, I looked at it and I was almost a little shocked to see an Amber Alert without a white name in it. Like, it happened so rarely that I was a little shocked by it. And yeah, for me, that elicited even more kind of like panic and pain for me because it was like, you know, this is someone... It must be really bad. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and this was the second time this sort of alert was used for an Amber Alert. Mm-hmm. In Ontario, anyway. Yeah. I mean, even the ones from prior to this system, like on the radio and on TV. Yeah. Um, you know, even in those, like, you remember when you would get, like, junk mail that would come in, like, an envelope, and if you ripped it open, there was, like, that panel of, like, missing children? Whoa, that is so nostalgic. Yeah. Like, I just remember a lot of white faces in those booklet and a lot of white names like I I don't remember seeing people who looked like me I don't remember seeing a lot of black faces yeah um you know that's true yeah even even as a kid and this was like the little true crime fanatic in me I remember looking at missing children portraits and just thinking like what is their story like what what are they going through right now? And you're right. I don't think I've ever seen one where I'm like, this could be me. And that is very telling. Yeah. I had a bit of a different kind of relationship with, like, missing children. Because despite my... I I grew up in Pickering, which is a suburb outside of Toronto. Yeah. Uh, um, for those who aren't familiar. And it's a relatively safe 
city. But as a kid, I remember a lot of attempted snatchings. Oh my god. Around, like, the high school and in my area, like, my neighborhood even. And it was, like, to the point where it was, like, culturally at my school, if a white van slowed down near you. Holy shit. You, like, ran, you crossed the road, you did whatever you, you, you like, weren't I can't believe okay I've never that. heard of this. It's... Like, it was just a lot of, like, attempted ones, I think, because they weren't really, like, successful. Oh, my God. That, like, it didn't get a lot of, like, media attention. But I just remember as a kid hearing, you know, Dan on White's Road, somebody tried to pull a young girl into this car, and over here, like, somebody stopped and tried to get someone to get into their car, and it was just, like... It happened regularly enough that I was just hyper aware of the possibility of being kidnapped at any point. Holy shit. And yet, like, I grew up in Brampton and I remember walking around, like, wanting to go to the park by myself and, like, not giving a crap about anything. I was, I was so not oblivious. allowed <laughs> until I was, like, partway into high school. And even then. Yeah. Even in high school, my mother didn't like me walking alone anywhere further than, like, five, ten minutes away from the house. I think it's... I was the eldest. Oh, I was the youngest. Yeah, I was the eldest of three siblings, and I definitely, like, would just go out anyways. (laughs) That's, like, the punk kid in me, where I was just like, I'm just gonna do it. (laughs) I was actually a very well-behaved child, up until high school I remember Uh, I remember being at Pizza Pizza and seeing like a group of teen punks come in and I was must have been like in elementary school I looked at my mom and I was like I'll never wear black nail polish mom (laughs) (laughs) little did she know (laughs) funny I had the punk aesthetic first and then the attitude problem later that's adorable like when I was I think it started when I was nine is when I started getting into black nail polish and I bought myself like one of those Halloween black lipsticks. So it looked horrible, but it was like a cheap black lipstick. And uh, that's amazing fashion sense for a nine year old. That's amazing. I was very lucky in that I had a cousin, a much older cousin who was very involved in my upbringing, who was the like oddball of the family. And like she had prince posters in her room and like everything was purple but it had to be like this nice dark purple and like i played dead or alive on the dreamcast in her room like it was (laughs) like oh my god i wouldn't be this for my cousins now (laughs) and like yeah like and she dyed her hair purple when I was pretty young, and I was like, I want to dye my hair, and my mom was, like, so mad, yeah. but she was like, okay, I'll let you do it once, so you'll get it out of your system, and she let me get these red streaks in my hair, and I was like, I love this, I'm never not yeah. gonna have dye in my hair ever, and she was like, no, <laughs> it did the opposite. Fuck, I'm just thinking of, of Rhea, I'm thinking of, like, this girly girl who loved pink, and, like, She's not going to be able to dye her hair. Yeah. That's so fucked. 
like we're we're never gonna know if she'll have like a punk phase or if she yeah. is was always going to be that just like adorable and bubbly person that she she looks like in all of her photos yeah i really hope to see her story covered elsewhere um especially in like canadian true crime uh like there's the canadian true crime podcast and like some publishers i i hope that we do get more details about this yeah because not knowing sucks yeah it's it's like you just want to know how we could have done better yeah and like where exactly the breaks were like was it that he was just abusive and controlling and spiraled when he couldn't control the women in his life was it something else Ugh. i need like the explanation for this fucking madness yeah because it, it is something even more tragic when it's a father and a daughter yeah and that might just be like for me because I have so many issues with my own father. Yeah. That it's like, like this is so tragic that so many South Asian non men are going to go through life having a horrible relationship with their father and then mm-hmm. have this looming reality hanging over their head that their lives are disposable to them. Yeah. Oof. There has to be a note we can leave on that isn't just it's the end of the fucking world. (laughs) I mean, the fundraiser was nice to see. It wasn't Mm -hmm. initiated by the family. It was just the community coming together. Um... Yeah, I guess I'm hoping for more conversations, more intersectional conversations about how this violence plays out with marginalized people and in our communities. And I want us to be able to dictate those conversations. Here's something we can end on. Um, You kind of ended the doc with this uh, really great question, which is what does this amber alert system and these you know um major alert systems the the cell phone alert systems mm-hmm. what would they look like in a world without cops yeah i i always ask myself what would this world look like without this oppressive system and mm-hmm. like what parts of the world can we still hold on to even when we dismantle capitalism Um, And yeah, I was thinking like in my ideal world, how would we handle these instances? And I think it would be like a a signaling system like the cellular system is a good way to get word out. I mean, we raised some good discussion about how it doesn't have to be at full volume for people to pay attention. But I think that, you know, encouraging people to go to the streets and look encouraging people to have discussions with their families about violence with their partners about violence finding ways for us to navigate through abuse and through crime 
without the result being like death or imprisonment Mm -hmm. uh this is what this is the world i'm trying to build this is the world i'm fighting for yeah and i was thinking about this too and to me i think a system like this in a world without cops could help foster this sense of community where we put it on each other to protect each other instead of relying on this authority to decide what we need protecting from this like proven harmful authority that is broken and very very broken yeah yeah i think we need to really put our hands in and do the work and find the tools you know be willing to make mistakes because the mistakes that are happening by relying on quote unquote the law Mm -hmm. is uh leading to more death i like to imagine that it would kind of have be kind of like that small town vibe where everyone pitches in for each other and looks out for each other yeah instead of you know constantly ignoring each other and pretending like bad things aren't happening to people around us just because they're strangers and not people that we have actively invested time and energy and emotions into yeah for me personally like I'm trying to find models of conflict that aren't world ending even in my personal relationships I think we're not shown how to navigate through conflict in a mutually respective respectful way in a compassionate way so that's like the small activity that I'm trying to undertake to sort of transform the way I relate to other people and hopefully the way like we as a community can relate to each other to other communities that ripple effect I feel like that's a really good note to end on. Yeah. How are you feeling after this discussion? I, the, the end discussion kind of helped bring it back, the energy, and, and I'm not as kind of as hopeless yeah. as I was kind of yeah. towards the end there. Yeah, there was a lot of, like, looking down and looking into, like, the darkness of the world we live in. And (laughs) I think holding on to hope and finding pleasure as much as we relish in crime and pain is so important. So, yeah, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm looking forward to, like, making myself a good dinner and relaxing before getting back to reality tomorrow. Nice. Uh, before we go, do you have any social media that you want to plug? Um, I encourage people to look for the True Crime Intersections group. Uh, it should be searchable. And I'd love to have people come in and like analyze these crimes, analyze these systems, and also share things like our favorite podcasts and <laughs> freak out about uh peel's new movies coming up because us looks freaking awesome (laughs) i will plug my social media now Mm -hmm. uh so if you want to get more involved with six ad world and to be a part of the conversation 
feel free to tweet at us at sixadworldssw. Um, with Jasmine being on a hiatus, um, you can follow our Instagram at sixadworldpod. Lots of underscores. It'll be in the description. Um, or you can send us an email to sixadworldpod at gmail.com. Um, so are you familiar with how we usually end I can't remember. I just want to tell people to like be safe and like let's take care of each other. And don't be a murderer. Yeah, don't do that. Yeah, it's it's pretty good advice. I agree. Try try not to kill people. Try not to harm them in any way in general. Yeah. Just don't don't do the thing. And if you think you're going to do the thing, maybe tell someone. Tell a bunch of people. Get some help. It's out there. It is out there. And take lots of naps. Mm Mm-hmm. Sometimes you just need a nap. And and you feel different. Stay hydrated. Mm Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. Since this episode was recorded, there have been some updates that Kitty and I wanted to include in this episode. It turns out the medical issue Rupesh had that halted the legal proceedings was a self-inflicted gunshot wound that wasn't discovered until he was transferred to the custody of Peel Regional Police. He was taken to the hospital where he died on Wednesday.